looks forward to a time that is in our past. It foretells the suffering of the servant of Jehovah, or the servant of Yahweh. And of course, the servant being described here is that none, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it prophetically speaks of his suffering for us. And it does so by giving us five stanzas in this song, as it were. It actually begins back in chapter 52 and verse 13 and runs all the way through the end of chapter 53. And so this year, as we've been observing the Lord's table together, uh, every other month as we do on the first of the month, we have been looking at the servant song of Isaiah. And just to help you to see how this passage is actually broken down, as I said, there are five stanzas. Uh, they consist of three verses each. So think tonight we sang songs and we sang a stanza with the chorus to it. And these were Old Testament songs, and this is five stanzas here, but, but they sort of mirror each other. The first one and the last one are similar. The next two in are similar. And then it's that center one that is really the focus of the prophecy. And so here's how it's laid out. In chapter 52 and verses 13 to 15, you have the servant's success. The servant of the Lord will be successful. He was repulsive but redemptive. We read that by saying, many were astonished at his appearance, and yet he will sprinkle many nations. In the next stanza, the beginning of chapter 53, you have the servant's suffering. He lived in rejection. And that chapter opens by saying, he had no form or majesty that we should desire him. He didn't stand out. And then you have the brunt or the focus of the passage, and that is chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, where it talks about the significance of this servant. And there's where you have this transaction being described. You have these words about him. He bore our griefs, and he suffered, and he was wounded. But he did this for us. It was for our transgressions, and with our stripes, or with his stripes, we are healed. And that's the focus of the passage. We looked at that last time. The next stanza, 53, 7 through 9, again speaks of the servant's suffering, and it speaks of him dying in innocence, and that will be our focus tonight. And then this song, as it were, ends, the very last, 53, 10 through 12, and it speaks again of the servant's success. He was crushed, but victorious. Tonight, I want to focus on that fourth stanza. 53, 7 through 9, and let's just read them. Please follow along as I read aloud. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? They made his grave with the wicked 
and with a rich man in his debt. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Tonight I want to focus our attention on this passage and just note the silent servant of the Lord. Did you notice that? The second line, he opened not his mouth. The end of verse 7, he opened not his mouth. And the end in verse 9, there was no deceit in his mouth. This is the silent servant of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand these things tonight. Lord, thank you for your word, though written millennia ago, yet it is apropos for us tonight, and it speaks to us tonight, and it reminds us of the eternal truth of Jesus and his suffering on our behalf. So encourage us tonight as we consider his suffering as we understand that it was for us, and as we're reminded of that in partaking of these elements together. In Jesus' name, amen. Silence can be uncomfortable. For some, silence is golden. Silence can mean consent. But silence can also be powerful. we read in the 53rd chapter and we read of what would happen to the servant of the Lord what stands out to us in this particular stanza is his silence though so much happened he opened not his mouth verse 7 tells us of his silence and suffering Verse 8 reminds us of his silence in trial. And verse 9 tells us of his silence in burial. Notice with me the silence or the servant's silence in suffering in verse 7. We're told that in verse 7 that this servant of the Lord was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. What does it mean he was oppressed? He is silent, though oppressed. The word oppressed means to exert a demanding or exacting pressure. This is the verb form of this word, but it is translated in the book of Exodus in its noun form, and there it is translated in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7, and it speaks of people 
who were actually over the people of God, the Israelites. And it speaks of the Egyptians and these people that were over them, demanding things of them and oppressing them. Do you remember what they were called? They were called taskmasters. And that's the idea of this word, the oppressor. Someone who exerts demanding, exacting pressure. It is harsh, physical treatment at the hands of other people. And we're told prophetically through the mouth of Isaiah that God said his servant would be treated this way, handled roughly in an exacting kind of pressure, yet he would remain silent. He wouldn't object. He wouldn't complain. He was silent, though oppressed. In addition, the text tells us he was silent, though afflicted. Afflicted is a different word. And it's not just piling on words. It's actually speaking of a different thing. Afflicted, this word is actually passive in that it's he's allowing the affliction to take place. And it has the idea of his humility in allowing something to happen to him. And the affliction looks like mockery. He would allow people to humble him and mock him. And yet he would remain silent. Is that not what happened when our Lord faced the cross? In fact, look at Matthew 27. You might want to hold your hand in Matthew's gospel. We'll be comparing a number of texts there tonight with the text in Isaiah. Certainly you recall this story of Jesus as he is tried and to be crucified. Matthew 27 and verse 27 says this, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The mockery of the servant of God, and yet not a word. We have no record of Jesus opening his mouth to such mockery. The mockery continued on the cross. If you look at verse 39 of Matthew 27, and those who passed by derided him. Literally, it means to blaspheme him. They were wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. 
mockery continues. You have this scene of oppression and affliction, and yet Jesus is silent. Go back to Isaiah 53, because Isaiah gives us, the Lord gives us through the pen of Isaiah, an illustration of this. And this is an illustration that we wouldn't readily understand, but everyone in an agrarian society would certainly pick up on this illustration. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. How does a lamb go to its slaughter? A lamb goes to its slaughter unknowingly and therefore without protest. Perhaps it's thinking, here's another snack. But it's being led to its doom. The point being made here is not that Jesus went unknowingly to Calvary. He was full well aware of what was taking place and what was about to happen. The parallel is this, he went without protest, like that unknowing lamb, not a hint of resistance. And then we're given this illustration in verse 7, and it was like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You ever seen a sheep sheared? I wasn't aware of that. I had to look it up this week and, and say, I want to know, is this true? Do sheep make noise when they're sheared? And if you're interested, there's a YouTube video sharing a sheep in 60 seconds. You ought to look it up. It's fascinating. But what they would know and what I didn't know really until this week is that when you shear a sheep, here's how you do it. You set the sheep or lamb on its backside you lean it back, and when you do, veterinarians tell us that cortisol is released in the brain of that sheep and almost puts it in a numb-like state. And you lean it far back enough where you can hold it, and it will almost hold still no matter how rough you handle it. And that's why you see them lean those sheep back, and they grab those clippers, and they handle that thing roughly, and they get right through it, and the thing just sits there like it's having a day in the sun if you get it in the right spot. And verse 7 draws out this illustration and makes this comparison, and it says, Jesus handled roughly, yet was without protest like that sheep. What's the point? point is that Jesus' death was not a capitulation to weakness. It wasn't a man finally tired of fighting, and so he's giving himself up to the powers that be. The point is, is that Jesus' death and giving of himself without protest was an exercise of deliberate control. He was not overpowered. He simply chose to not resist. Jesus was silent in the face of his suffering. Which brings into light a great contrast 
Remember the word taskmaster? What did the people of God do when they were faced with those taskmasters? Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7 says, they cried out because of the injustice of the taskmasters. They complained and they wanted everyone to know the injustice being suffered. Many of them, I'm sure, demanding something be done about this. What did Job do when he suffered? We often think of Old Testament Job as one who was a paragon in suffering, and indeed he endured. But listen to this in Job chapter 7. Job says, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And Job, when he suffered, complained. Here is the only innocent man to ever walk the face of the earth being oppressed and afflicted and there's not a word. This is no victim. James chapter 3 and verse 2 says, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Up to the point of Calvary in his moment of great affliction, Jesus demonstrated his sinless, perfect nature by holding his tongue though he was oppressed and afflicted. What do we do when we're oppressed and afflicted? We complain and we gripe. I'm driving to church tonight. I'm looking at the week ahead and it's going to be hot this week and Complained to my wife. I thought summer was over. When will this be done? I complain. It's too hot. I have too little. I'm getting too old. This is too hard. Why is this happening? Beloved, what we demonstrate in those moments is our lack of perfect submission to the will of God. And it comes from our heart and comes out of our mouth. But Jesus, when he was suffering in the will of God, opened not his mouth. The perfect This is the servant's silence in his suffering. But the servant was also silent in his trial. And I mean by that those religious and civil trials that the Lord faced. Notice what we read in verse 8 of our text tonight. It says this, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. I need to explain that a little bit. The word oppression there is actually a different word than used in verse 7. Not sure why our translators translated it the same, but it's a different word, and the word in verse 8 actually means restraint or to close something up. And so it says, by oppression or by restraint, 
and judgment. Think of justice, someone making good judgment. By restraint and justice, he was taken away. And so translators have come to this verse and have wanted to translate it in various ways. In fact, the King James Version says this, he was taken from prison and from judgment. They get prison from that idea of restraint and the word oppression. That Jesus was taken from prison and from judgment. Is that what is being communicated here? That Jesus should have been in prison maybe, or maybe he was taken out of prison and away from justice, but he went to Calvary. Well, we have a New Testament passage that actually sheds light on what is being spoken of here when it says, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And I want you to look there with me at Acts chapter 8. Go to the book of Acts. Chapter 8. Here's the familiar story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember that, young people? You remember the story of Philip? And the eunuch and how this man from Ethiopia, a wealthy man, is in his carriage and he's riding through the desert as it were. And God sends Philip to him and God says, go to that man. I want you to talk to him. Remember that, young people? This is that story. And we're told that this eunuch, this man that Philip meets in this carriage, he's reading a particular passage of Scripture. And do you know what he's reading? He's reading Isaiah 53 passage we're looking at tonight. Look what it says in verse 32 of Acts chapter 8. It says, now the passage of scripture that he, this man, was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's what we're reading in Isaiah, right? But look at verse 33. This would be our verse 8, as it were, in the text. It says, in his humiliation, Justice was what? Denied him. You say, well, why does that read differently than what we read in Isaiah 53 in verse 8? By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Because Luke is quoting in Acts chapter 8 the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And Luke is quoting that. And in that, those translators took the position that when it talks about oppression and judgment, he was taken away. What it's really communicating is this. There was no justice. He was taken away from justice. It wasn't a just trial at all. And I think that is the proper sense of the text when you read what actually happened. That these trials were illegal trials, and there was no justice being sought in those trials. In fact, because of those trials, no justice was had. He was led away from justice by the nature of those trials. Let me show this to you. Look at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, verse 59 We read this, this is now Jesus before the religious leaders, Caiaphas, the high priest, and the council. We're told in verse 59, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Imagine that, religious 
men who claim to be holy men. They're looking for liars to come and condemn this one they want to get rid of. Here's what we're told in the end. Finally, into verse 60, at last, two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Was that true? Did Jesus say that? Absolutely. He did not mean by it what they think he meant. And therein lies their conviction. Nevertheless, we're told in verse 62, the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Verse 63, but Jesus remained what? Why? They weren't looking for justice. They were looking to condemn him. And Jesus knew it. Eventually, Jesus would say something when they put him under oath. But by and large, Jesus remained silent. This happened again before in a civil trial. Look at Matthew 27. Look at verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor, Pilate, was greatly amazed. Silence. Silence to these charges comes again at another trial our Lord faced. Look at Luke 23, Luke's gospel, the 23rd chapter. Verse 7, verse 6 rather, it says, When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, speaking of Jesus. Verse 7, And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had longed to desire to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod thinks, this is my chance. I've heard about this guy. It's like a magic show. Maybe he'll feed 5,000 in front of me. Maybe he'll heal somebody or make somebody blind see. Notice what Jesus says. Verse 9, so he, Herod, questioned him at some length, but he, Jesus, made no answer. This trial, Jesus says, not a word. Why? Because justice was not sought at this trial. And Jesus knew it. We could look at John 19, 9, where the same thing is said, that he once again entered the headquarters of Pilate, and Pilate asked him, where are you from? He's trying to figure this out, and again, Jesus gives him no answer. We know that it is not that Jesus never spoke during his trial, but there was never a word in defense of his own innocence. He doesn't lay out his case. Why not? I think we've already hinted at this one point. Jesus' silence at this injustice 
demonstrates his sinlessness. No one in here could be under the same circumstances, I think, and not utter a word of protest. The other thing is that Jesus' silence at these trials demonstrates his love for us. Because he knows what he must do. He must be condemned and crucified because that was his father's will. And that was how he would accomplish our redemption. Jesus was silent in these trials, but he wasn't the only one. Go back to Isaiah 53. Told in verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, or literally justice was denied him. He was taken away from justice. And then we're told in that second line of verse 8, and as for his generation, who considered or who knew? Now we need to do a little work with the text here again. What is this saying? When it speaks of his generation, is it speaking in terms of his offspring? That as for those who came from him, generated by him, who knew or who considered? Is that what this is saying? In fact, the NIV translates this, who can speak of his descendants? You may think it's a prophetic way of saying that Jesus would not be married. He would have no descendants. This would be his state in life. But is that really what it's saying? Is it generation speaking of descendants? Well, what's another way that we can speak of a generation? Not our descendants, but actually of our contemporaries, right? This is our generation, contemporaries among us. We live in a particular generation. We even label them as Gen Z, right? And the millennials. Gen X, I forget the other one, but that's a generation, it's one's contemporaries, and I think that's the idea of what is being expressed here, when it says, as for his contemporaries, who considered, or who thought about what was going on, those that were around him and knew him, who really took it to thought what he was enduring in these trials? Who really thought about the fact that this was an unjust trial and this shouldn't happen this way? Who spoke up for him? I think the point that Isaiah is making is that there was no advocate in his defense. In fact, one translation I think picks it up very well this way. It's the Net Bible that says this way. He was led away after an unjust trial, but who even cared? Did anyone protest for him? Indeed, he was cut off from the land of the living because of the rebellion of his own people he was wounded. It wasn't for his own sin, it was for ours. But who even cared? Nobody stood up for him. Jesus was silent. And nobody else spoke up either. And justice wasn't served 
Or was it? Remember I said that sometimes silence is consent? Might it be that Jesus taking upon your sin and my sin knew that the treatment he was enduring and the death that he would die was actually justice served? And therefore he was silent. And he knew that righteousness was being had. I think that is the case, as we'll see in a moment. But lastly, let's note verse 9. We're told that they made his grave with the wicked. In the verse 8 says, he was cut off out of the land of the living, saying he died. But he didn't die for himself, he died for the transgression of the people. And they made his grave with the wicked. What does this mean? The term wicked there is plural. We could say all the wicked or the wicked ones. They made his grave with them. It means that he was crucified with thieves, the wicked. And what they would do in those days after they crucified one who died as a criminal is they would throw them in a mass unmarked grave. Throw all the bodies in a mass unmarked grave. And that was fully the intent of the Romans. He's a criminal. They've crucified him. His body will be disposed with the wicked in those mass unmarked graves. That was their intent. But what happened? Look at the second line of verse 9. And he was with a rich man in his death. Now that's odd to say, isn't it? He made his grave with the wicked, and why specify rich man? What does that have to do with anything? And yet he's with a rich man? Well, we have the privilege of looking back upon the fulfillment of this. And so look at Matthew 27. Look at verse 57. We're told when it was evening, there came a rich man. A rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. And he intervened. He went to Pilate. Pilate, who fully assumed that Jesus' body would be thrown in that mass grave, and he asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate amazingly conceded and ordered this to happen. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut himself out of the rock. Why? Because that's how God said it would happen 800 years before this happened and 2,800 years ago. It was the fulfillment of this prophecy of Isaiah 53, the silent servant. 
who would in silence suffer, who would in silence bear the injustice of these trials, and even in silence, others would be speaking for him, Joseph, to have his body and to bury it in his own tomb. But notice how Isaiah 53 concludes. Go back to verse 9. We're told they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. And then our translation says, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Although is a word of concession. They did this. He was with the rich man, although he had done no violence. They intended to bury him with the wicked, although he wasn't guilty. But there's another way to translate this. In fact, again, that Septuagint, that Greek translation of the Old Testament, has a different word here. And it says, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death because he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. In other words, Jesus wasn't really the wicked. He demonstrated in all of his silence his sinlessness. Therefore, God's honor of him began with a rich man taking his body. Because there was no deceit in Jesus' mouth. Because he willingly submitted to the will of the Father and endured the pressures of affliction for us. Romans 3, 12 to 13 says this. All have turned aside together. They've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave they use their tongue to deceive. Do you know who that's describing? It's describing me. And it's describing you. And the book of Romans is saying, this is the evidence of a sinful creation. Their mouth is like an open grave. And often what comes out of it is ugly and decaying. There's deceit in their tongue. Only one person on the earth could it be said, this wasn't true of them, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he demonstrated it in his silence. His silence in suffering. His silence in trial. It also demonstrated something else very important. Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Do you know the verse? A ransom for many. Jesus said, I came to give myself in this way. In Luke 22, in the garden, Jesus said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And what was this will? Look at Hebrews chapter 10. We'll end with this. Book of Hebrews in the 10th chapter. 
In verse 5, the writer of Hebrews says this, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, this is the servant, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, for it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And this is cited from the 40th Psalm. And it says, this is when the Messiah came into the world. He said, I have come to do your will. And what was that will? Well, look at verse 8. When he said above, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to law. Verse 9. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Jesus said, I come to do God's will. He does away with the first, those Old Testament sacrifices, in order to establish the second, the new covenant, verse 10, and it's by that will. What will? It's by the will of Jesus, who said, not my will, but God's will. It's by that will we have been, what? Sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And what is the demonstration of Jesus' surrender of his will to the Father? It's his silence. Taking all the scourging. Enduring all the injustice. Receiving the mocking at Calvary. Because his will was to do God's will and justify us. Jesus, as a silent sufferer for you and for me. What does that say about us? Our complaint, our griping, betrays or demonstrates rather a lack of submission to God's will. It demonstrates our disagreement with how God is ordering our lives. Our complaint that I wouldn't have done it this way. God wants to work in every one of us the likeness of his son. That when we endure suffering, even unjust suffering, that we can do so in quietness. Because we endure according to the will of God. This is our model. The death of Jesus was a miscarriage of human justice, but it was also our Lord's clear-headed choice. He wasn't caught in a web of events beyond his own control. He willingly laid down his life and suffered for us. 
tonight as we gather around this table and partake of these elements, we're reminded of that. We're reminded of the body that was broken for us and the blood that was shed on our behalf. And let's remember tonight as we observe this together as a church family that Jesus suffered silently for us. Let's pray together.